0: From WHQR Public Media, this is The Newsroom. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for joining us. On this episode, The True Colors Double Murder Case. It's one of the most high profile and complicated murder cases our region has seen in recent history. And today, we are not going to solve it. Nope, not even close. To be clear, I know there are some really strong opinions about the three defendants in this case. I've spoken to family members who say they're 100% innocent and law enforcement officers who say they're 100% guilty. I don't have all the answers and those people I talk to, they probably don't either. What I do know is that these three men who have been in jail under million dollar bonds are innocent until proven guilty. This episode is about the process that set them on their path through the criminal justice system, the grand jury indictment. It's a process that in North Carolina is shrouded in absolute secrecy. Or maybe I should say almost absolute secrecy because in this one very rare case, we have a glimpse inside the black box and some disturbing evidence that a detective may have perjured himself in front of a grand jury while securing indictments it's a concerning situation where no one seems to know what to do, because no one is supposed to know what happens inside a grand jury hearing. One of those things we found inside the black box is rap lyrics, and that'll play a role in the eventual trial for at least one of the suspects, and I had some questions about that too. So we're not gonna solve the case today, but we are taking a closer look at some of its moving parts and what they might say about the court system as a whole. But first, it's worth a refresher on the True Colors story and how it ended. On the afternoon of June 19th, I went to court, following up on a lead, but not entirely sure what I was in for. I walked across downtown Wilmington from the WHQR studios to the New Hanover County Courthouse, No, not the iconic red brick bell tower that's embossed on the county seal, but the concrete facility behind it. Past the cops and clerks taking their smoke breaks just off of the property, past the defendants talking dejectedly, to their lawyers outside, through the metal detectors, into the elevator, the one that always smells like stale sweat and cannabis resin, and up to the fourth floor to a big open room with bare wooden benches and lousy acoustics. I saw a few people I recognized in the courtroom and nodded without saying anything, and I took my seat. Then I watched Dyrell Green, a young black man in his early 20s, brought into the courtroom in shackles under the watchful eye of no fewer than a dozen uniformed sheriff's deputies and a lot more plain law enforcement officers who had come to watch the proceedings. All around me, sitting on the long rows of hard wooden benches, were men and women, some tearing up, some steely-faced, kids too wriggling and kicking their feet in total boredom, likely unaware of the seriousness around them. These were friends and family members, mostly black, of both the suspects and the victims of what's been called the True Colors murder case. Retired reporter and court watcher, Roberta Penn was there, sitting near me in the gallery.
1: Well, I go in there as a court watcher. I've been watching courts for decades now and I set my mind when I go in there to look at it as being, and it turns out the same way every time. It's uh, black people on the stand who are being charged with crimes, and white people either trying to prosecute them, defend them, or make judgments on them. And in addition to that, we had 11 deputies from the sheriff's department, and uh, a lot of black people sitting in the Audience, if that's what you call the people at a court, a session of court, the audience, and most of them were black uh, friends and family of either the deceased or the people who are being charged.
0: Dyrrell Green was there along with his co-defendants Amante Bell and Raquel Adams. All three are facing felony conspiracy and first-degree murder charges for the death of Corey Dries, or Corey Tyson and Brianna Williams. The shootings that took their life took place in a five-bedroom, four-bathroom house in the affluent Providence neighborhood of Ogden, the home of George Taylor III, known to his employees as GT3, the scion of the successful Taylor family. Taylor was the chief operating officer for True Colors, the for-profit brewery and anti-violence initiative run by his father, George Taylor Jr. Now, to say the least... True Colors was an unconventional business, employing active gang members who the elder Taylor claimed were helping him fight street violence. Though the brewing side of the business barely got out of the gate, True Colors was the talk of the town for years, but not always in a good way. Still, however controversial, employing gang members let Taylor have an edgy voice in the debate over street violence, rejecting conventional wisdom about gangs. There's a couple of like premises that you have to like at least understand. You don't have to buy into it, I guess, but that we buy into that drives the way we go. So when I first got involved with True Colors and I was first trying to figure out um, gang violence, uh, I was one of those guys that came in, well, if you're a gang member, you probably got
2: two roles in life to sell drugs and carry a weapon and sometimes use it, right? The more I got into it, the more I realized that's completely false. Like this correlation that America has between gangs and violence is not true. Uh, in fact, the vast majority of gang members are not doing anything wrong. Um, there's a small pocket of them that are, no doubt, but the vast majority are not.
0: The Taylors were also unapologetically aiming to make a buck. The elder Taylor once told me that job number one was selling beer. The social mission was important, but this was emphatically not a nonprofit. Still, he spoke passionately about his desire to end violence in the largely black, low-income neighborhoods where his employees had grown up, and he talked about those young men as friends. Corey Tyson was one of them, a young black man who had risen up through the gang ranks, sped along in part by a stint in federal prison. He became a regional leader for the Folk Nation GDs, that's Gangster Disciples, or Growth and Development. Corey sometimes went by the street name Thug, And I've heard him described as both a violent career criminal who got worse with every prison sentence, but also as a promising young man who started off at a severe disadvantage and fell into a broken system. The community had mixed feelings about him, too. After his funeral, many laid flowers at his headstone, but someone also lit his gravesite on fire. Now, according to law enforcement, Corey was killed by Adams, Bell, and Green, who were members of a rival gang. And the story shocked people. It was a gang hit, a brutal double killing in a nice neighborhood that was miles away, literally and figuratively, from the homes of most True Color employees. From some I talked to privately at the time, this wasn't a surprise. They felt the tailors had been playing with fire by hiring active gang members. And publicly, things seemed to sour on True Colors after the killings. Sheriff Ed McMahon who had not weighed in publicly before that, said he didn't see how the company's plan could possibly work. And District Attorney Ben David, who was a friend of the Taylors and who had a role in True Color's origin story, told me a few months
2: after the killing, Until you actually renounce the gang, not just violence, but renounce the gang, here's the problem with any business model that would allow you to say, we're going to find the good and praise it within this gang. You are 40 times more likely to be the victim of a homicide in America if you're the member of a gang.
0: The family of Brianna Williams went further, directly blaming the elder Taylor for their daughter's and sister's death and accusing Taylor of simply profiting off of young black men. Here's Brianna's older brother, Malquan Dixon, talking to WECT.
3: You take a lot of young kids from different areas of town different gangs, different sets, knowing they don't like each each other. other. And put them in one building and you're paying them and you want them to stay in the game while working. That, you can't live two lives like that. Mm -hmm. One has to go.
0: The story even caught national attention, including a long form piece in The New Yorker, which painted a complex portrait of the Taylor family and their business. I spoke with the author Charles Bethay several times while he worked on the piece And after it came out, he told me it was fair, but not always flattering. And Taylor, he blamed it, chief among other negative media reports, for spooking investors and forcing True Colors to shut down. The whole thing was a tragedy, no question. The Taylors lost an employee, a friend, they lost their business, and probably something of their reputation, which they'll have to work to rebuild. But there are also two dead young black people who won't get that kind of chance, There's Corey Tyson, and whatever you think of his criminal history, he was killed at age 29, before he could have the kind of redemptive arc that the Taylors said they wanted for him. And Brianna Williams, who also lost her life, murdered at age 21. It's a death that's just as tragic, but more inscrutable. She wasn't in a gang. She didn't work for True Colors. From what I know, she was just visiting a friend at the wrong time. And while the story of True Colors is likely over for good, the True Colors double murder is still an active case, headed to trial next year. And like the tragedy of True Colors, the lives of young black people are at stake. This time, three young men facing life sentences. But along the way, the case ran into trouble, a patch of legal black ice that I certainly didn't see coming. In fact, I've never seen anything quite like it in our local courts and neither has anyone else I've talked to. That takes us back to courtroom 403, where Judge Kent Harrell began the hearing by instructing his bailiffs to confiscate all phones from the gallery. If you see a cell phone, seize it immediately and take that person into custody. I wrote that down. But I still thought about sneaking my phone out, maybe leaving it on my lap, just to see what would happen. A few of the deputies, who know I'm a journalist, gave me the look. Do not try it. The mood was tense. Not just the presence of additional cops and deputies, the injunction on phones, but a frostier-than-usual back-and-forth between the three defense attorneys and Prosecutor Doug Carricker and District Attorney Ben David, who handled a lot of this hearing. Early on, the two sides sparred over preliminaries. Court watcher Roberta Penn has been doing social justice volunteer work for many years, and she's seen a lot of courtrooms, and she always finds them a little bit unnerving.
1: I'm always intimidated in a courtroom, whether I'm there for a traffic ticket or somebody's murder case. I always feel intimidated just because it's not user-friendly. It's very hard to understand the language. They don't speak very loud, so it's hard to hear if you're sitting in the back of the room. I don't know all the terms. Even after years of doing this, I don't know all the terms. So it's hard to, to even get a grip on what's going on if you're not part of the center of it. So uh, I just feel uncomfortable there, and I think a lot of the people feel uncomfortable there.
0: Tense and confusing. Yep, that's court. Even if I had risked sneaking my phone out to record and risked being tossed in jail on a contempt of court charge, I'm not sure it would have done much good. Like I said, the room has lousy acoustics. The courtroom echoes with sounds from outside, you can hear trucks downshifting, cars honking, but somehow, at the same time, it seems to swallow up the soft voices that prosecutors and defense attorneys slip into when they bicker with each other or approach the bench to talk to the judge. But that day was more than just the usual tension, and not just because of the dozen officers who had shown up. On the docket was a motion to dismiss the murder charges against Green and his co-defendants, Amante Bell and Raquel Adams. I'd seen the legal motion for Green's specific case, and what his attorney, Emily Byram, had argued was, frankly, kind of shocking. They had evidence that a law enforcement officer had given faulty testimony, maybe even perjury, to the grand jury that indicted Adams, Bell, and Green. Now, an indictment is a necessary step in North Carolina if you want to pursue serious felony charges. The defense said in their evidence a presentation for the grand jury prepared by New Hanover County Sheriff's Office Detective Jeremy Boswell contained potential perjury that violated the suspect's constitutional rights to due process. And because of that, They argued the cases should be thrown out. I'd never heard of anything like this. So before going to court that day, I had asked a few defense attorneys I knew about this, and they balked. First, any evidence of a law enforcement officer lying in court is pretty serious business. But second, and probably more importantly, they asked how the hell did I find out about this? They reacted that way because, and here's where things get sticky, The fact that the lawyers had access to the presentation at all is really unusual because nothing is supposed to come out of a grand jury, like absolutely nothing except the indictment. So I called Phil Dixon. He's an expert on criminal defense who educates public defenders at the University of North Carolina School of Government. He's helped me out for past stories where thorny legal issues came up. He told me the situation was basically unprecedented. I've never seen anything quite like it. Um, It's not something that comes up a lot. I got the sense that um, everyone, uh, Emily Byram, who's the capital defender, and Doug Carricker and Penn David, we're all kind of in uncharted territory here.
2: Mm -hmm. Very much so. In North Carolina, the grand jury is basically totally secret. Um, We don't record the proceedings, uh, so there's no record of what the witness said to the grand jury And what's unusual, I think, is to the extent I follow it about this case, is that it appears the state provided some discovery to the defendant uh, or to the defense counsel that, you know, was the presentation given by a witness to the grand jury.
0: Now, according to the North Carolina court system, one of the reasons for all of the secrecy around the grand jury is to protect the reputations of those who are accused but not indicted. But the consequences for those who are indicted is pretty much always overlooked, and that is that flawed evidence, even perjury, gets hidden from scrutiny by the grand jury's black box. Byram and the other defense attorneys on this case were preparing to argue with District Attorney Ben David about whether or not that box could be opened if there was evidence that something had gone wrong in the grand jury. But the argument was complicated and kind of threatened to turn into a snake eating its own tail. Follow me here. There is almost no North Carolina case law on how to handle misconduct in the grand jury because almost nothing ever escapes the grand jury to indicate misconduct. And even talking about what happens in the grand jury threatens to upset state law, which puts the defense on thin ice and the prosecution on edge. Tense and confusing. That's court. I looked over at Ronald Canty, who is Dyrell Green's father. He was sitting not far from me in the courtroom, and I remembered this was not an abstract legal argument for him. This was a chance for his son, who had been in jail for almost two years at that point, to go free, to see his daughter, Ronald's granddaughter, to get back to his life. In May, a month before that hearing, I'd sat down with Ronald, who goes by Gator in his neighborhood, and sitting in the studio at WHQR, we talked about his own run-ins with the law and the trouble his sons had been in and his hopes for them in spite of that. Ronald told me he'd been raising Dyrell since he was three. My son and I are very close. I wanted him in custody at the
3: age of three years old. he has been staying with me ever since. You know, and um, I raised him, not because his mom was a bad woman, just that she had different type of um, miscellaneous people around him, like drug dealers and. Like this, so I had to get him out of that type of environment. So he was at the age, he was um, two years going on, three
0: years old. i have been on my job 21 years. Talking about the hearing, he couldn't ignore that there was a real chance his son could go free on Juneteenth. A coincidence of the court calendar, but an auspicious date to Ronald, who felt like racial bias had played a role in his son's arrest and indictment. He told me he was optimistic that his son liked the judge and wondered how District Attorney Ben David could possibly defend the use of faulty evidence from the grand jury. Okay, so it's Monday, June 19th. It's Juneteenth. Oh, yeah. So maybe yeah. he'll be freed on Juneteenth. Oh, yeah, well, you hope so, because my son told me this a while ago, he he really this
3: judge here. He so he's a straightforward, baddable. But you know what? I'll I, I bend my thing. How do you defend that if you're a DA?
0: That's what we were in courtroom 403 to find out. You're listening to The Newsroom. Please stay with us. I'm Ben Shockman. thanks for staying with us. Even if you had followed the True Colors double murder case, if you had just walked into courtroom 403 on June 19th, there's a good chance you'd have been confused as hell. The arguments went by fast, and they did not stop to give backstory, even if you could have heard them clearly. Reading Byram's motion ahead of time had cleared some things up, But it still was not clear how the defense had gotten their hands on the grand jury PowerPoint presentation put together by Detective Boswell. But the timeline suggests it might have been an accident, which would explain how something so unusual and unprecedented actually happened. Dixon told me it's definitely not the kind of thing that usually gets turned over to the defense.
2: That's not something I've ever seen in discovery. I don't think that's commonly given in discovery. There's probably a a decent argument that it, it isn't discoverable or that it shouldn't have been disclosed in the first place.
0: Here, basically, is what seems to have happened. As the case was proceeding, the defense had gotten increasingly frustrated with the prosecution for failing to turn over documents as part of discovery. They called it a voluminous and exorbitant amount of outstanding discovery. That's documents that the parties are supposed to share with each other to keep them from being caught off guard. Unlike those last-minute surprise moments you've probably seen in courtroom TV and movies. But when it came to a bond hearing for Dyrell Green last year, that is exactly what happened. The defense was faced with a detailed presentation with evidence they'd never seen before. So how could they have prepared for it? The defense was caught off guard, and Green paid the price. Or rather, he couldn't. He ended up with a $1.2 million bond. And his father, Ronald, told me there's no way his family could afford even a 5 to 10% down payment on that to a bail bonding company. The defense made phone calls, sent terse emails, and filed motions to compel the release of documents. And under all this pressure from the defense, it looks like prosecutors finally released additional material a couple weeks later, including that PowerPoint presentation that Detective Boswell had created. Now, including that PowerPoint, that seems to have been a mistake for the prosecution one that the defense jumped on. After reviewing it, the defense found what they called serious errors. Several of these were discussed in courtroom 403, but since I couldn't record, I cannot play you the tape of that, which might have been lo-fi at best anyway. But I can tell you what was in Byram's motion. Here are a few of the claims they said Boswell made in his PowerPoint presentation. Boswell claimed Amante Bell had been arrested for shootings in Wilmington, but there's no record of that. Boswell also claimed that Bell had never denied being involved in the killing, but defense attorneys said interrogation transcripts show that Bell repeatedly denied committing the murder, not just once, but more than 70 times. Nor did Bell say he was with any of the other co-defendants on the night of the murder, although Boswell's PowerPoint claimed he said just that. Then there's the rap song. Boswell's presentation alleged that Dyrell Green created and published the rap song in the few weeks between the July 2021 murders and the arrests the following month. The PowerPoint said the song referenced a wound that Tyson suffered during the murder, basically implying that this was a confession by Green. The defense countered that the songs were initially posted as audio tracks on SoundCloud in April, months before the killing, and I was able to verify that. And if you're wondering, like I was wait, are rap lyrics admissible as evidence at all? Put a pin in that, because we'll come back to it later in the show. In any case, when I asked Ronald how he felt about this, he told me that misrepresenting when the song was actually put online was designed to make it feel more like a confession from his son.
3: And, and that's what really got him locked up, because they had no other evidence and nothing else they could really even put on. To this day, they don't have that, you know? So how can you get a true bill of indictment they had to lie about the date, because if the grand jury had seen the date, then they would say, no, this couldn't be.
0: So whether you call them errors or mistakes or inaccuracies or something stronger, this is probably the kind of thing that, in a courtroom, in front of a judge or a jury, would be grounds for a mistrial. But because it happened during the grand jury proceedings, we're not really supposed to know that it happened at all. Part of the reason that the allegations about what Detective Boswell showed and told the grand jury are so shocking is that it all seems so unnecessary. As one defense attorney I spoke to told me, this is like cheating at checkers. And Phil Dixon confirmed the grand jury is not really a fair
2: fight. The defendant and his lawyer, his or her lawyer, are not even in the room. They're not necessarily aware that the grand jury is convening to consider their case. And it's very much a one sided process. And
0: when we talk about this process, when we talk about the grand jury, we're talking about a regular looking courtroom, but with no judge, no prosecutor, no audience, no defendant sitting there hearing the charges against them. And definitely no defense attorneys. It's just the grand jury. That's about 18 people and a witness. That's almost always a law enforcement officer. It doesn't have to be a firsthand officer who is involved in the investigation. It can be a deputy or a police officer who is summarizing the case. And that case is only the evidence against a suspect. There's pretty much never any exculpatory evidence, nothing that would be in favor of the defendant. And when the grand jury is hearing this evidence, the jurors are asked to consider a much lower burden of proof than they would if it was a jury trial. They're not asked to consider whether a crime was committed beyond a reasonable doubt, only whether there's probable cause. I've had some criminal justice experts ballpark that in statistical terms as the difference between being 99% sure and just over 50% sure. Back in 1985, Saul Walkler, who was then the Chief Justice of New York's Supreme Court, famously said, Any good prosecutor can get a grand jury to indict a ham sandwich. And that's just about true. They indict almost every single time. Federal grand juries do it 99% of the time, according to records from the Bureau of Justice Statistics. And exact figures for grand juries here in North Carolina are a little harder to come by, but experts say it's over 90%. It's so often that many people treat it as a foregone conclusion, and that's probably the reason it rarely gets scrutiny that and because we'd never have any way of knowing if there was anything that required scrutiny except in this case. Dixon said there's a good argument to be had that the powerpoint should have stayed sealed, but it didn't.
2: But once they have it, the uh the cat is sort of out of the bag. And I think that's what's unusual about this case as my understanding is the defense is alleging that this presentation um basically proves that False information was was given to the grand jury.
0: So the question in courtroom 403 was, now that the cat was out of the bag, what would the court do about it? For defense attorneys Emily Byram and Jordan Willis, the answer was simple. Dismiss the case. Now, again, I don't have a recording of the hearing, because if I did, I would be in jail, and I don't have the hundreds, if not thousands of dollars it would cost to get a transcript from the weird third-party system that North Carolina uses to record and document court hearings, but I did take pretty good notes. Green's defense attorney, Emily Byram, looked to other states, because there's not a lot of case law here in North Carolina, and she noted that North Carolina is one of just 10 or so states that have this high level of secrecy. She also looked to federal cases, where grand jury records are kept, even if they're sealed, for a situation she said was, quote, just like this. The defense attorneys pointed to a 1974 ruling from a federal district court judge who referred to perjury in the grand jury as a, quote, cancer of justice. Now, I have to say that the secrecy around the grand jury created some almost absurdly comic moments. Like when the prosecution argued that there was no way to know if the PowerPoint had actually been used in the grand jury, since the grand jury is secret. They didn't say it wasn't used, just that there was no way to be sure. And here, Byram pushed back pretty firmly. She noted that, on the stand, Detective Boswell had admitted that he and he alone created that PowerPoint presentation. And she noted that the metadata in that presentation file showed it had been edited up to the day of the grand jury hearing and, with a fair amount of restraint, pointed out that the file was called Detective Boswell G.J. PowerPoint Presentation. And based on all of that, she said it, quote, defied belief it hadn't been used in the grand jury hearing. From my seat in the audience, it looked like Prosecutor Doug Carricker wanted to argue the merits of these allegations, which would require acknowledging that something might have happened in the grand jury. But District Attorney Ben David did not take the bait, and he focused on the importance of grand jury secrecy. David said, quote, They've never been able to invade the secrecy of the grand jury. They're stabbing all around it. David also called the defense's motions, quote, slanderous allegations, and pointed out that the grand jury secrecy cuts both ways, preventing Detective Boswell, who created the presentation, from defending himself from accusations of misconduct. David really drilled down on the defense's, quote, creative attack on the grand jury process and cautioned against what he said would happen, quote, if we begin to go down this road. Judge Harrell seemed to agree with him, saying, quote, if I allow what you're doing here, what's to stop every defense attorney? And I didn't catch the end of that, but I imagine he said something like, every defense attorney from challenging the grand jury. Basically, Harrell was saying this could open a great big can of worms. And that opinion is in line with what most judges would probably say, at least according to Phil Dixon.
2: I think that's where most judges would land. I mean, that is a sacrosanct rule in North Carolina that the grand jury is secret and that you're not allowed to ask them about their deliberative process or what evidence was presented before them.
0: But as the defense attorneys have said, it's also very rare for them to find themselves in this position. Dixon agreed on that front too.
2: You know, defense lawyers are not willy-nilly challenging grand jury indictments um, based on this sort of challenge.
0: This is, according to everyone I've spoken to, a very weird situation. And it doesn't fall neatly under any of the statutory reasons for challenging a grand jury like racial discrimination when it comes to selecting jurors, something Phil Dixon told me hasn't been an issue since the civil rights era. It also doesn't quite fit under the law that covers when a juror is, quote, incompetent. As the prosecution pointed out, that kind of refers to mental capacity to understand what's going on, not truthfulness.
2: And that really puts us in uncharted territory. I mean, we have very sparse case law about when the veil of secrecy can be pierced, but we don't have anything that says, you know, here's what happens when someone lies to the grand jury.
0: Ultimately, Judge Kent Harrell ruled against the defense's motion to dismiss the case and also against the request to reduce the defendant's bonds, insult to injury for the defendants, Harrell didn't rule on the merits of the claims, in large part because if he did that, it would violate the principle of grand jury secrecy, the thing he was trying to protect. He would have to allow a discussion of it, even a hearing on it. Instead, he argued that even if the defense's claims were true, whatever constitutional violations might have occurred would be dealt with at trial, where those rights are guaranteed. And that might sound bonkers, but Harrell noted that many constitutional rights aren't required in grand jury hearings. For example, defendants don't appear before the grand jury and thus they can't face their accuser or witnesses. So no sixth amendment. Basically, a lot of what we think of as our rights don't exist in the grand jury. It's not a bug. It's a feature. I asked Phil Dixon if anything could be done about this under the current law.
2: It would take somebody basically crafting some kind of procedure that you know, manages to protect the uh, integrity and secrecy of the process on one hand, while also holding to account the state for you know, any misleading or, or incorrect information that was presented. Short of that,
0: Dixon said the court could make sure the trial happens sooner, so questions about potential constitutional violations could be dealt with. He also said that at that trial, the alleged perjury of an officer could definitely play a role. And, since there appears to be a scarcity of physical evidence in the case, Dyrell Green's rap lyrics could also play a role. (laughs) Yeah, for me, that was kind of a record-scratch moment. Sorry about the dad humor. But seriously, as a former English teacher, I was kind of surprised to hear this. Wasn't the poetic eye, the first-person voice in a poem or a piece of fiction, assumed to have some distance from the actual author? And okay, okay, you don't want to retake English Literature 101. Fine. Doesn't the First Amendment cover this? The answer was not really. According to Phil Dixon, it's actually pretty common for lyrics, especially rap lyrics, to be used in criminal cases.
2: I mean, rap lyrics specifically do get used a good bit, and that's really across the, the country and different states and in the federal system to the extent it is Probative, relevant. It is, shows something useful, uh, more so than it prejudices the defendant. And that's always a discretionary, you know, sort of weighing of, of the scales by the trial judge. But, um, I think I mentioned to you before, there's a really funny Key and Peel skit about this where, you know, the guy is, writes a rap song about killing this specific person with this specific weapon at this specific time and how he's going to get out of it and who's going to really take the fall.
0: It's not every day that i get to cite the excellent work of keegan michael key and jordan peele as a journalist so here's a taste
3: first things first i do not care that you're a multi-platinum selling rapper gun rack
0: what i care about is that i 100 percent know that you murdered darnell simmons so you better start talking
3: yeah but you ain't gotten up huh? okay <laughs> i you, you know i'm actually i'm very glad that you said that Because I respectfully, I beg to differ. I killed Darnell, yeah, I shot him with my knife. I shot him nine times, 9 p.m. on the dime. And by the way, it was November night. That don't mean nothing. I got a vivid imagination.
0: But all jokes aside, it does feel a bit racially biased that rap would get used, whereas the many crimes detailed in hard rock or country music, these don't get used as often. Dixon said it's the specificity and similarity to a real crime that's the key. We didn't arrest Johnny Cash because, one, authorities were not investigating the shooting death of a man in Reno, and two, Cash didn't provide a lot of details. Where in Reno was it? What time? What day? Was it a 30-odd-6 or a Colt 45? Now, that key and peel skit is kind of a reductio ad absurdum take on the challenges a prosecutor must face when, as Dixon pointed out, rap lyrics do, in fact, get very detailed. You know, we can't prosecute every country
2: music singer who talks about killing their boyfriend or somebody shooting their dog or whatever. Artistic expressions are protected under the First Amendment, and I don't think they, they are, you know, used willy-nilly against people to show that they're a bad person. And in fact, it would not be permitted for that reason, right? I can't just say, look at this awful song this person wrote, he's such a bad person, he must be guilty of this crime. But, you know, especially, especially in the world of hip-hop music. Sometimes people are gang affiliated or they're they're rapping as if they are. Uh they're talking about real people, real gangs, real beef um, between groups or between individuals. And you know, the closer it gets to real life, the more specific it is. You know, the, the most damning stuff is where people are writing rap lyrics about the crime that they're accused of or that it seems to be about the crime that they're accused of while they're in custody and the state gets a hold of that
0: it's worth noting here that california and louisiana have both passed laws meant to protect artists in situations like this and there is a bill that's been proposed in congress that would provide federal protection although it has not gotten a lot of traction In the meantime, courts, in general, are leaning towards accepting rap lyrics as evidence in a lot of cases. Now, unlike Dixon, I am not a legal expert, so I will not try to predict whether a judge will or won't allow Dyrell Green's rap lyrics as evidence in the True Colors murder case. But I can say, the track I listened to, the one that the defense talked about in their motion to dismiss, doesn't seem to meet the standards that Dixon laid out. I watched Green's music video. He goes by Sleepy and raps under that name, and he and several others appear brandishing multiple firearms, and they are delivering some violent lyrics. And we're about to play you a clip of that, so just a note, we have bleeped the potentially offensive words out of this, but it still might not be for everyone. I'll also say Green raps with a drawl that makes it occasionally difficult to parse his lyrics, but the line we're looking at sounds like he's rapping about shooting hollow-point bullets into someone's neck with a play on the phrase, Popping Your Collar. And that, apparently, is the link between Dyrell Green's rap and the murder of Corey Tyson, who was apparently shot in the neck. But as his father, Ronald, pointed out to me, the track doesn't name Corey. It doesn't use his street name, Thug. It doesn't specify a time or a place. And Ronald told me his son was pretty frustrated about the way the song was being misrepresented.
3: See, Daddy took him old tape I made in April of 21. Took it to the grand jury and said I killed Corey and made the tape was bragging about it.
0: Ronald told me that the allegations of perjury in the grand jury to him show how weak the state's case is against his son. But not everyone would probably agree with that. And that might have something to do with the way the media has covered the story. More on that in just a minute. You're listening to The Newsroom. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Newsroom. I'm Ben Shockman. Thanks for staying with us. As I said at the top of the show, I don't know whether Raquel Adams, Amante Bell, and Dyrell Green are guilty or innocent. And even if I somehow did, That would still be a decision for a judge or a jury. But I do know that law enforcement has had a chance to very publicly make its case, with the help of the media. After the arrests, Sheriff Ed McMahon and District Attorney Ben David portrayed the True Colors killing as essentially a gang hit. Tyson, they said, had become a high-ranking gang member of the Gangster Disciples, and they claimed Adams, Bell, and Green were validated gang members from a set of the rival gang, the Bloods. This is one of the core problems about how the news covers crime. We see the mugshots, we hear the charges, and what law enforcement alleges the defendants have done. It's quick turnaround fodder for outlets that constantly need new content, but it's really hard to follow up, since police will, pretty much inevitably, cite the ongoing investigation and decline to comment, and prosecutors will do the same thing. And in many cases, they're actually legally barred from commenting all of that tends to obscure the fact that even if they're stuck in jail with really large bonds, these are people who are innocent until they've been proven guilty. Here's court watcher Roberta Penn, who's been following this case and many others. Well, it's
1: stacked against them because if you noticed after this hearing, one of the TV stations, they aired a film clip of Sheriff Mann talking about how dangerous these three young men are. And yet, there's been no proof of that at all. And this clip from the sheriff was when they were arrested almost two years ago. So, yeah, they just want to keep sending out that same story, the same story that people who are arrested are evil. How many people who are arrested are innocent? So many. How many people who are, who are arrested and wind up getting convicted for things that their buddy did or something like that? So, yeah, the innocent to proven guilty, I don't know. That doesn't seem to matter anymore.
0: That's been incredibly frustrating for Ronald, who has always maintained that his son is innocent because he has an alibi. He says he was at home with his son, who was asleep on the couch after watching a movie on the night of the murder.
3: I got another call with my son. I said, what's up, man? He said, Daddy, them people arrested arresting me. I said, arresting you? He, he said, yes, yeah. Eddie. Send me what a murder want. I said, a murder want? So I'm I messed up now because I knew this kid was laying on that couch, you know, and this was about 3.30 in the morning because we were looking at a, a movie called You Might Have Seen it, Snowfall, and that's what we were looking at, you know. So he fell asleep.
0: And Ronald disputes the claim that his son was on the run from law enforcement before he was arrested. Ronald told me Darrell was in New for the birth of his daughter, that's Ronald's granddaughter, in early August of 2021. Another thing Ronald took issue with was the way law enforcement described his son as a, quote, validated gang member. Now, Ronald is not an apologist for gang life. He told me he has a very dim view of gangs. Unlike George Taylor, he doesn't see any redeeming qualities to that lifestyle.
3: I feel like it's useless. I I, I feel like it's a waste of life. And I feel like, you know, that the kill somebody to get rank in a gang or, or get street credibility... That's totally wrong,
0: you know what I mean? Ronald told me his son has had a number of run-ins with law enforcement, including convictions for guns and drug possession. So he's had a lot of interactions with the Wilmington Police Department and other law enforcement. But he was surprised when he heard, for the first time, that his son was affiliated with a gang when he appeared in court. When they they finally arrested these three kids. Right. That was the first time you'd heard of a gang validation? Yes,
3: ran in the courtroom. Right there in the courtroom. See, well, that's the picture he's trying to paint.
0: Let me go on a quick tangent here because I think this is important. The term gang validation is a really tricky one. It's the label law enforcement agencies use to identify likely gang members. It's based on a variety of criteria – It is not a criminal conviction, but it can have legal impacts from making it harder to get a local pistol permit to influencing how likely prosecutors are to go after you. It could impact your sentencing, and it can determine how you're treated in prison. The criteria run a gamut, and if you squint, I might fall under a few of them. Tattoos, some of the people I know, the words I choose on certain occasions. But I am a middle-class white guy, and there's pretty much no chance I'm getting validated as a gang member no more than any of the tailors were likely to get validated as gang members. Some have criticized gang validation as violating due process, since there is not a simple judicial appeal procedure for people who are not in gangs or who have since left gangs. Other have called the criteria too broad or too vague, and note that being in a gang is not, under most circumstances, in and of itself illegal. My point here is that it's worth listening closely when law enforcement announces an arrest, like when Ben David and Ed McMahon announced the arrest of Adams, Bell, and Green, because they will use the term validated gang members as part of their presentation, and it makes it sound like they've got a strong case. And a lot of the time that gets repeated in the media without any context, without pointing out it's a lot more complicated. So just food for thought to be honest with you i guess i don't really know what i actually expected to see that day june 19th in courtroom 403 if judge kent harrell had dismissed the case it would have been extraordinary it would have been a landmark piece of north carolina case law but harrell didn't dismiss the case He didn't even lower the bonds for Adams, Bell, and Green. And afterwards, understandably, Ronald was upset. It didn't seem like a great time to talk, so we went our separate ways. But we caught up again a couple weeks later, and he told me he was frustrated that no one was paying attention to what had happened in the grand jury. And he told me he felt that race played a role in it, at least at a systemic level.
3: You understand what I'm saying? That's the frustrating part about it. So that's telling me... There's a lot of bias, and there's a lot of, man, racism-type thing in it. You know what I mean? Come I'm say this, and I say it on record. If them boys white, then they with to jail. Let's be logical. And I'm not a racist, but I know what the society do and how they believe and how they look out for each other.
0: For the casual observer, I think it can be easy to forget how slowly the criminal justice system really works. And I blame law and order. At the beginning of the show, you find a body. Halfway through, you got a suspect. And by the end of the show, we're in court. But that's not how it works. It takes years. For only one example, look at Dyrell Green's attorney. She filed a motion to dismiss this case in February. It didn't get heard until June. The case itself probably won't go to trial until May of next year. And at that point, Ronald's son will have been incarcerated for almost three years. And Ronald tells me he's mostly been held under maximum security in the county jail, and because of an altercation with a guard, he's been wearing a full restraint. That means shackles for his hands and ankles for most of the day, even in the shower.
3: So that get it justify them to put the whole full restraint on him. He got to go to the shower with it on, you know. Yeah. So it just it's just an um, unconstitutional the way they're doing it.
0: I have covered crime for a while, and when someone like Dyrell Green is found guilty, Not a lot of people look back at the time they had spent in jail waiting for their trial. Days, months, years, all of that gets lumped in with the sentence. Time served. The time they spent in jail as an innocent person gets blurred with the time they're going to spend in prison as a convicted criminal. Few people on the outside are going to parse the difference. It all comes out in the wash, one defense attorney told me. But when the person is innocent... There's no recourse to get back the years spent in jail, waiting for their day in court. North Carolina's criminal justice system isn't built to look backwards, least of all at the grand jury. So maybe you can see why Ronald, who has always maintained his son's innocence, is so frustrated. Frustrated that the secrecy of the grand jury is taking precedence over the evidence of perjury in his son's case. And the irony is, there is evidence the black box was opened, however briefly, the veil of secrecy was pierced, even if only a little bit. Knowing what an unusual occurrence it is to have any evidence from the grand jury, Ronald told me he's concerned about how many other times something like this has happened, especially to young black men, without anyone knowing about it at all.
3: But my point has been is, where you go from here? I mean, is there any kind of rights for us? You know as I mean? you know. Constitutional right?
0: All right, that's all the time we have for this edition of The Newsroom. And if you're interested, we'll have plenty of links to more reporting on this issue on our show page. Thanks to Ronald Canty, Roberta Penn, Phil Dixon, and the many defense attorneys who talked to me on background for this show. Thanks also to my colleague Kelly Knoyer for a lot of help in writing and editing this piece. And, of course, thanks to our WHQR technical team, which this week is one-man army Ken Campbell. If you missed any part of this program, you can find it at whqr.org. You can also find it as a podcast, pretty much everywhere you can find podcasts. If you have thoughts or comments about today's program or ideas for a future show, email us at newsroom at whqr.org. I'm Ben Schachman. Thanks for listening, and I hope you'll join us for the next edition of The Newsroom.